everybody! Welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 169, Middlemarch, book two. Today is part two of our quarantine read of George Eliot's long and intimidating classic novel, Middlemarch. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need, where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker, Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey. Well, hey. we're in the belly of the beast now. <laughs> we do not. 200 turn. pages in. <laughs> we don't have the Let excitement you, it... of an origin story, and we're certainly not closing in on the plot anytime soon, so... <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, I've received a lot of messages on the internet from people who have attempted to read along with us who are saying, not going to do it. Wow. <laughs> really? Tapping out? I'm uh, I'm getting into it. Oh, well, this yeah. Is, this, I found this... I found this 100 pages mu- like much easier to read yes. than the first. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Is that a function of us, our brains adjusting? Yes. Or is that just because it actually got better? No, well, your brains are adjusting. Plot. Our brains are just, there's a little bit more plot. Um, there's a little bit of consequence in these hundred pages. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, what I think what happened for me is USA Today picked up that we were reading this, and now I feel like we got to bring it. Well, you know what, Todd? <laughs> oh. Wow. It wasn't, our regular listeners weren't enough. It was that USA Today. Okay, all right. So, I take it you didn't do the SparkNotes version of... Uh, uh, book look, two. I I consumed this book in uh, in a way that I felt was comfortable for me, and that involved a lot of different media. Okay, well, let's <laughs> get up to date on the story, uh, on where we are. Oh, please, yeah. I'd like I'd like to hear you try to encapsulate the exciting movements of the last hundred pages of Middlemarch. We go to Rome, we talk, we come home. That was only about thirty pages. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, near the end. We've discussed Uh, a fever hospital. Okay, now, we're going to get back to that fever hospital because who knew Middlemarch would feel so fucking relevant. Uh, Yeah, that's true. So So, tell us us where we are, Julia. All right, so, I mean, I can sum it up pretty fast. We have, um, well, we have our heroine, Dorothea, and she has married Mr. Casabon. They have gone to Rome on one of those cool, very long honeymoons where you look at art and wander around. Um, it's vastly... need a more desirable cousin. Yeah, who has... Don't give it away. Yeah, Mr. Ladislaw has incredible curls when viewed from the back. Uh, this has already been described several times. Um it's it's so mullety. I I can't. It's hard to. It's it's just hard to get into the his rapturous neck curls. Um, and then on, on the other I recognize Ladislaw from the back of his head. <laughs> on the other end, we have Doctor Lydgate, who is new in town, new to Middlemarch, and he is trying to. We learn a lot about him. I'm sure we'll get deeper into this in a second. But he's also very ambitious, like Dorothea, in a different way. And he's just sort of, he thinks he's above all the politics and 
uh, pettiness of Middlemarch, but when it when push comes to shove and he has to vote for a local clergy position, he just goes with the flow, man. And I think that's pretty much it. He falls in line. Um, did I miss anything important? Well, well, the important thing, of course, is that Mr. Kazabon is yeah. revealed to be a little bit of a not what he seems to be. Well, maybe maybe that's not true. Well, hold on. Before we get, there's also there's also the the Fred Vinci stuff. Oh, yeah. Isn't that happening here too? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Rosamond's brother, who right. that's really how this 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 book begins with him sort of navigating the the personal like financial reputations. Like, I'm not quite clear on all that stuff. Like that and the the hospital fever stuff. I like my eyes glaze over, and I'm like, do I really need to know all the details? Okay, so the yeah. Fred the Fred stuff is exciting. It's, it's a little hard. I think the Fred stuff is the yeah. most. The Fred stuff was clear. So the Fred stuff yeah. is that basically somebody talks shit about Fred, <laughs> and <laughs> and word got back to Mister. Keep your name Fair- out of Fred's mouth. Yeah. Well, what Fred is fair something or other. What Fred is going around saying is, "Hey, listen, I'm gonna come into this estate. This old dude, the, some distant member of my family, he's gonna, gonna die. Up. I'm gonna get everything, and so he's taking out debts against that presumed uh, right. inheritance, and um, that's stupid. That's a dumb thing to do. Um, he's also in he's love a with a plain girl. Fred's a grifter. Yeah, but he's yeah. so charming and great. Mm-hmm. I love Fred." Well, yeah, Fred, Fred's cool. Fred's more interesting because he's got a lot going on, and obviously because his name is Fred, and everyone else is named like Horatio Lydgate. You're like, oh, Fred, he's he's the he's us, which is muddling through oatmeal to get to the main dish, seven hundred pages away. <laughs> so you still um, love it, huh? The stuff, <laughs> yeah. The stuff about Lydgate, though, in the fever hospital. Mm-hmm. So Lydgate wants to open up a hospital, and he's looking essentially for wealthy donors to back him in it. Um, and the people of uh, of the region are basically like, yeah, we get it. Fevers are bad, but we really only want to support a hospital that um, is solving the mortal diseases. Um, so... Immediately, we have the beginnings of the failure of the world's health organizations to recognize. Well, you, you know what's so funny? Yeah, it's like there's that right, and then also from book one, Dorothea is all about housing for poor right. people. So it's like super fascinating. This book is actually like the two our two main characters have pet projects that are super noble right. that are about. You know, basically taking their wealth and privilege and trying to find a way to help the community through public health and through housing, which are still the issues we're dealing right. with today. And they're it's like, and they're treated oh God, their ideas are treated just as poorly by the wealthy. <laughs> that that sounds nice, but how about something different where I get something from it? <laughs> right. Right. So but, so here's the part that I really perked up though. It's in about the last thirty pages of book two. Uh, they're in Rome for their um, for their honeymoon, and they encounter sort of a Rosenstein and Guildenstern group who want to do a portrait <laughs> of Dorothea. <laughs> yeah. um, but while Dorothea is in Rome, she comes to realize that while her great love, Mr. Casabon, has all of these books and studies, and he's always preparing to create this thing, she never actually sees him writing anything. <laughs> And so it turns out that Kazabon, like many people that I've encountered in my life, 
say they're writing a book, but they really aren't. <laughs> He's just yeah. a guy who always wanted to write a novel. Or, I have so many ideas. Would you like to write one of my ideas? I have an idea. Here's an idea. Would you like an idea? I have an idea. Right. Write my idea. Right. I'll give you 50% of the royalties. Write my idea. So Kazabon, it turns out, is not this great man of letters. He's a guy who reads a lot. But does not actually yeah. produce his own stuff. He spends his whole honeymoon in the library. Yeah, he's just sitting around reading the entire time. Which I love that. Also, I love strange that. analogy I'm... to our present day. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that moment when when Ladislaw. So Ladislaw is a young guy that, that Dorothea meets, you know, coincidentally at in the museum, and then he comes to visit her while Casabon is out. And I just love like his like the filter his ability to see that for what it, that situation for what it is like immediately mm-hmm. where he's just like laughing like literally smiling and laughing at the idea that this is Casabon's idea of his honeymoon and like and then he has to sort of cover and make it up the why while he's smiling because Dorothea catches him smiling and then they end up sharing like some nice moments but it's just I loved having that like very clear perspective of like yeah what are, what are you doing lady you married a <laughs> You know, you, you marry this old fogey and then you're like surprised that he wants to sit around and read books instead of hang out with you. And, right. and gets overwhelmed when you try and kiss him. Yeah. I mean, I I think the scene where Dorothea and Kasavan have this fight, it's such a good it's so so good. Um she's basically like um can I help you with your writing? All you've done is let me see your notebooks. <laughs> and he's like, fuck you. And I, I didn't actually um, mark it, but there's this wonderful line where, from Casabon's point of view, it's like he thought that having her would be a reprieve from this like critical world that he's so defensive about, but really he invited the critic to live in his life. Um, right. <laughs> it's one of the best it's lines. So yeah, it's so good. Really good. Okay. Uh, hold on. Yeah, it's it, it's he. What is he made a fence? What is it? I gotta run. It's right before the end of the book. Let's see here. Oh, I totally marked it down because I was like, "This is so good." All right, there you go. Uh, to Dorothea's inexperienced sensitiveness, it seemed like a catastrophe, changing all prospects. And to Mister Casabon, it was a new pain. He never, having been on a wedding journey before, or found himself in that close union, which was more of a subjection than he had been able to imagine, (laughs) since this charming young bride not only obliged him to much consideration on her behalf, which he had sedulously given, but turned out to be capable of agitating him cruelly (laughs) just where he most needed soothing. Instead of getting a soft fence against the cold, shadowy, unapplausive audience of his life, <laughs> had he only given it a more substantial presence? Yes, incredible. <laughs> oh, I just love that he's this, his whole life has been like pushing people away and judging them. Right. You know, and like, I'm so much smarter and I'm just this sensitive bookworm. You know, I'm too good for this world. And then here she is like, well, what do you actually write, dude? <laughs> basically, <laughs> what do you- basically, she's like, are you doing NaNoWriMo? What, what's happening here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> can we get some pages? Oh. How about some pages? <laughs> I mean, all, all the Dorothea writing is so great. I mean, well, just scenically, there's a couple of moments um, with her. So it's a long time in this book before we get back to her. Um, but 
immediately, like the first sentence is like she's sobbing, and it feels so she's like sobbing. modern to say that. And then I also love the scenic detail yeah. where when Ladislaw sees her, like she's surrounded by all these great works of art, but she's just like zoning out, looking at a beam of light on the floor. Um, mm -hmm. And those yeah, two pieces image. of writing um, are just so wonderful. Like they're so evocative. And let's see. Uh, I also love this part I wrote down. So she's she's really emotional, you guys. This has been a hard come down for her um <laughs> yeah she's, i think the term that you might call it is she's depressed <laughs> okay she well married a dude she didn't know she didn't really love yeah so here yeah. we go and she hates that the emotions and love wanting of love are ruling her which is you know the important right. part so here we go i love this writing if and, only she could come down with a fever. <laughs> and by a sad contradiction, Dorothea's ideas and resolves seemed like melting ice floating and lost in the warm flood of which they had been but another form. She was humiliated to find herself a mere victim of feeling, as if she could know nothing except through that medium. All her strength was scattered in fits of agitation, of struggle, of despondency, and then again in visions of more complete renunciation, transforming all hard conditions into duty. Poor Dorothea, she was certainly troublesome, to herself chiefly, but for but this morning, for the first time, she had been troublesome to Mr. Cosimon. Aw. Poor so, kiddo. <laughs> that's a great passage. It's a great passage, but it's also endemic of the true drudgery of reading this book. <laughs> get oh my out God, of here. Dude, get over it. Just enjoy it. What do you mean? You drudgery. Like, it. I mean, like there are things that you, there are lines that you read that like, I, I, there are things that I like, if I say to you right now, the gratitude of wasps, yeah. doesn't that, you remember that line? It's a great line. Cause it's fucking amazing. Yeah. <laughs> she has, it's like, it's, it's the description of how she as a child gave gratitude to wasps and, yeah, I'm just Something saying. Like, honorable susceptibility of sparrows. I mean, this is just like that last paragraph oh. at the line about the ice. So, Todd, <laughs> Todd, I this yes. is this is a let's let's broaden the question. Actually, um, do you find it possible to turn off the editor teacher part of your brain and just bathe in this? You know, it's it it is pretty hard to turn that off because. Uh, Right, so like right now, I'm reading a book to review, and I'm reading my students' work, and I'm reading uh, Middlemarch, and like at no point, except for really in this book that I'm going to review, um, am I not thinking all the time about the thing I'm going to say about the thing. Mm. The book I'm going to review, which I have to say something about, um, is is actually such a wonderfully transportive novel that I find myself just reading it like a novel. But, I mean, this is the challenge of part of of my job is that I have to have an opinion on almost everything that I read. Um, and so it's really hard not to have that. Um, unless I'm on a, well, I'm, this is never going to happen again, unless I'm on a cruise ship <laughs> and <laughs> have, have absolutely no other thoughts in, intruding on me. Like, uh, you know, to read, uh, like summertime, I, I read a lot for pleasure, but during the school year, um, I, you know, I'm reading constantly. 
and then if I'm reviewing, I'm, you know, I'm I have deadlines every six weeks or so, so I'm constantly doing it. So it's hard not to always be forming an opinion, which probably makes me an asshole. Come to think of it. Mm. <laughs> no, it's just the it's just kind of the. I mean, like I feel unfortunately that way about all the art I consume. It's like. You know, because like, I can't read books without thinking about my own writing mm-hmm. or literary disco. I can't watch movies without thinking about my own filmmaking and my own writing. You know, it's like it. most of the things that I enjoy the most are, are slightly ruined right. by the fact that I they are part of my my professional life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just that's you always have one foot in and one foot right. out. But I mean, obviously, these hundred pages were a lot more interesting than the previous hundred pages. Um, so actually, book three's title is is Waiting for Death, so I don't know <laughs> how that's going to go. Yeah. All right, wait a second. But so, there's there's obviously there's a lot more of interest happening in these 100 pages. To get through it all is a little bit difficult, but there are more scenes where there's uh, conflict-oriented dialogue. Actually, all the stuff in Rome um, went really fast. Pretty great. Um, so, I thought that was really good stuff. But I get a lot. Okay, so you both are like, obviously, this is an easier 100 pages. Now, this is a reread for me, and I felt the opposite. I was like, okay, you know, like, I, the first 100 pages as a reread was like, okay, yes, I'm, like, swimming in familiar waters. I get to meet everybody. This is so exciting. What's the town like? A lot of, you know, opening Beauty and the Beast shots, of our little quiet village. Um, And so I think what's happening is you guys are just getting used to the pros. You're resisting it, Todd. Todd's resisting it. Ryder's liking it. But I'm very interested. Is that it? Or I mean, go ahead. I also had this question that I wanted to pose to you guys, which is how much of this is just like propelled by schadenfreude? Like, <laughs> like, how much are we just enjoying the fact that somebody made a really shitty marriage and, like, right. we're just, like, stoked to see, like, because I, I, I couldn't, I, I feel this real sense of joy at Dorothea's, like, misery. Yeah. Like, and the fact that it opens her segment with, like, she's sobbing right. and me as a reader, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, what's up with that? Like, I feel like, I feel like a lot of this book kind of turns on the, the pleasure that we all have, like, I mean, how often do you look at married people around you and go, they they made a really bad <laughs> You know, like we all have felt that and thought that. And this book is just like a really, really thorough examination of somebody having to admit that to themselves. Right. Like, you know, in, in their private life, like she hasn't admitted it to anybody. And that is part of the tension is this feeling of like, how the fuck is she going to deal with this? How is he going to, you know, is he going to find out? Is she going to cheat on him? You know, like yeah. there's just all this tension, but most of it is like propelled, like nothing has actually happened. Everyone's been super polite. They got married. And like we said last time in the first five pages of, you know, book one. So really what is propelling us forward is for me, it really is this like, Ooh, I can't wait to see how this all falls apart. Right. And like, you know, that it's kind of awful, but and so also it's I like, Oh, it. well, Will is a much more acceptable mate for her. Right. That's going to go bad. <laughs> so, okay. So I think that that's so interesting, Ryder. I love this. Um, so I think a lot of the answers for me are actually in the lid get, Lidgate sections, there's some interesting writing about this where (laughs) the narrator goes into, like, he's at this party and he has flirts with Rosamond and then it's like, 
Uh, first, he thought about politics for 20 minutes before even remembering he talked to her, which will piss off the readers, but that's how it is. Um, and I think it's <laughs> it's really fabulous to have a narrator who's so frank about people's inner worlds and like true private thoughts. So it is it feels rare. You know, it feels like we don't have a lot of novels of course there are many novels that do this well but this novel like it'll go on forever about somebody's private thoughts and um i also loved i marked down um this other passage about lydgate where the book pretty much admits that there aren't a lot of books about people just uh (laughs) selling out and becoming normal and boring right. slowly and that is right. that's the heart of this section i think um let me read a little bit of it um and i just see. know by the way i know it's all going to come to ruin for lydgate this hospital deal is gonna like i i can see where it's going and it's not gonna end well for lydgate yeah so okay, here we go. Yeah, I mean, he, she's being—he's being set up so positively. Yeah. you know, like there's there's whole beautiful. I'm assuming it's the same section you're about to talk about, Julia, where it's just about his, I, I you know, his his ambition. Right. Like it's really well described, like how he wants to be a doctor, be a be a great person, right. but also be a normal person, live a normal life, but also achieve greatness. It's it's a beautiful section. Those are big thoughts for a man of just twenty and seven. I love I love mm-hmm. that section, but this is the section <laughs> I'm reading. This is different. Um, We are not afraid of telling over and over again how a man comes to fall in love with a woman and be wedded to her or else be fatally parted from her. Is it due to excess of poetry or of stupidity that we are never weary of describing what King James calls a woman's victim and her fairness? Uh, Okay, she goes on about this. Um, In the story of this passion. Doesn't she? She does go on. on. For a bit. In the story of this passion too, (laughs) the development varies. Sometimes it is the glorious marriage, sometimes frustration and final parting, and not seldom the catastrophe is bound up with other passion. For in the middle, for in the multitude of middle-aged men who go about their vocations in a daily course determined for them much in the same way as the tie of their cravats, there's always a good number who once meant to shape their own deeds and alter the world a little. The story of their coming mm-hmm. to be shapen after the average and fit to be packed by the gross is hardly ever told, even in their consciousness, for perhaps their ardor and generous unpaid toil cooled as imperceptibly as the ardor of other youthful loves. Until one day, their earlier Sorry. self walked like a ghost in its old home and made the new furniture ghastly. Nothing in the world is more subtle than the process of their gradual change. Ah! So yeah, that's good stuff. true. Yeah. Come on. It's really good. A little true. Yeah. A little true. So I, I <laughs> like, true. this is why this book is special is because it's like <laughs> life pretty much sucks. You yeah, guys, I mean, <laughs> that's the, George, that's I mean, the George Eliot clearly had some insight into human nature that is, is rare. That is for sure. And the ability, yeah, this other the ability passage, to sort of, I'm just going to jump in because what you just said speaks to exactly this passage on, that I have is on 207 that I just loved. It's just right when Dorothy is crying and sobbing Mm -hmm. and George Eliot sort of analyzing all the, you know, layers to this. Um, But just talking about how feeling, feeling and understanding other people, basically. Mm -hmm. If we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat 
and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. As it is, the quickest of us walk about well wadded with stupidity. Uh. I was like, yes, that is amazing. And it just feels like, you know, this book is, is attempting to give that sort of, you know, over like is is turning up the volume on the grass growing and the squirrel's heartbeat. You know, like that's what we're getting with this book is an attempt to sort of like widen our vision and and, and you know it's true. Like it, it's just a, it was just an insightful way to think about like the walls that we put up, the healthy walls that we put up to sort of just get through life. You know, we you know it's it's smart to to be stupid and to just put on blinders <laughs> because if we had to, if we couldn't filter the hu- the depth of human experience going on around go us like. We'd go crazy. It would be insane, you know? Um, and so I just I just thought that was so insane because it's like, I feel like reading this book is about turning up that volume. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I do like this bit about the dragons. Oh, yeah. Read that part. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did start to think of Casaban as George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, for a minute, that <laughs> a little, there's a little George R. R. Martin about him. That was a pleasant. Uh, so this is um, that was fun. This is this is in the middle of of um, book two. Uh, she must have made some original romance for herself in this marriage. And if Mister Cosbon had been a dragon who had carried her off to his lair with his talons simply and without legal forms, it would have been an unavoidable feat of heroism to release her and fall at her feet. But he was something more unimaginable than a dragon. He was a benefactor with collective society at his back. And he was, at that moment, entering the room in all the unimpeachable correctness of his demeanor. While Dorothea was looking animated with a newly aroused alarm and regret. And Will was looking animated with his admiring speculation about her feelings. So that's that's a great paragraph because it's also pretty much the greatest use of the omniscient narrator ever. She yeah. bounces to Three all characters. these different heads, yeah. basically, <laughs> yeah. and also has the also has Dorothea's imagination of the dragon. And what a, what a great image! Like a dragon doesn't need to have all these legal forms; it just grabs you with its talons. <laughs> it's like oh, that's a. That's a pretty. That's a pretty good line. And George. here he is coming through the door. Yeah, it's yeah, it's great. I mean, there's a lot of stagecraft in that too. Um, and you know, you wonder like if you saw that in a classroom now, like would you like what would you do to that line? Um, but see, that's what I was talking about before. Like, it's impossible for me to sometimes turn off that that thing. But it's a, such an, an amazing image. An omniscient point of view is is terribly difficult to pull off. Because it is so distancing. And maybe that's my general problem is that I I read this at a distance. I never feel like I'm in the scene. I always feel like I'm above the scene. And when I'm reading, I like to feel like I'm a character. Well, actually, no. I would say, Todd, maybe you want to be... George Eliot's taking your position. You know what I mean? You want to be the omniscient narrator. You want to be like interpreting and seeing all these different characters and relating them to each other but she's not really making room for you she's basically like right shut up todd's inner you know organizer just just listen and that's that's hard for you well but i mean that's the (laughs) that's the woe of the omniscient narration Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. you don't leave room for the reader to interpret there there is no interpretation that the reader needs to do because elliot does it for you and so part of my joy in reading is is the trust that 
an author typically puts into the reader. I mean, we talked about this a little bit in the first episode that she didn't trust her reader because her reader was not that advanced. They hadn't read a lot. We've all read more than most people had ever read at that point that were reading her book. Um, and so you understand why she does it like that. Um, it's, I mean, it's great writing, obviously, but it does leave out um, the other side of the equation, and that's the person who's holding the book. Well, I think we're going to return to this. Which, hold on, I, I'm going to hold on. I want to dive into that a little bit more because people were definitely reading yeah. a lot, especially like you know they're probably reading more. Actually, I mean, not well, you know but this general is, this population. Serialized but, in the in a newspaper or something. But that's right? the thing. People were re- they needed stories. This was their only entertainment, right? So they were reading a lot. What they were reading was crap. You know, what they right. were reading was like super bad versions of like what Jane Austen was doing. Like little fun stories about women getting married and like everybody everything working out or you know like we just forget all that, but there was pop crap where they didn't explain anything. I I think at the time it was still revolutionary to take characters seriously, this seriously and to dive this deep into human psyches and to like analyze it to death um, was even at the time, I don't, I think it was still pretty revolutionary. It was like this sense of, Wow, that's she's going deep. She's going so deep and taking every little moment and just stretching it out and and going through every layer and all the people are given their their due. Um, that's just I don't know, man. I I know what you're saying. Like we, I, but I do I I think we are we are still under the throes of like a very 20th century Raymond Carver yeah. ideal of prose mm-hmm. that. I don't like it's just one way and it's the way we've been in for a while and it makes sense that we've been in it for a while but I think you know there's so much room for different prose styles and um I agree like I like a more discursive style I like a like shorter simpler um you know and I, and, and I I I like I do like making leaps myself but then I don't like making too many leaps like I think Carver like mo- Carver is wonderful but all the people that imitate yeah, Carver I mean, I most of the time to, are pretty bad I, I don't want to read only minimalism you know Yeah yeah, there's 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 a happy medium. But I also medium. just don't want objectivity only. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't want like I like, like basically when I'm reading Middlemarch, I do feel like I am I I have like a a a a, a M, you know a English woman beautiful actress. Uh, let's make her Emma Thompson. Like you know with an amazing voice like taking me through this like world and you know like if, if i were to make a movie of middlemarch in my mind it would literally be her like sitting by a fire like talking to me if you, you made know, a movie a of middlemarch it would, it would last 37 hours and Werner herzog would make it uh it has been made <laughs> yeah. of course i mean i think you know i love i love this voice i love this point of view i you know as someone who likes a lot of traditionally canonical liter- literature I'm into it because I like to feel like I'm in the hands of somebody super intelligent you know I don't feel like I need to have my yeah. ego fed by like I how do I put this like I don't think she's saying she doesn't trust the reader I think she's like enjoying her own authority and intelligence and like curiosity um, and she's just following it all the way uh, and I don't think that's a commentary on us being stupid. I think she's just really smart, and we don't have to take that personally. Well, that too. I don't. I, I don't know. Omniscient narration. I mean, I talked about this last time. It just it's not my favorite. Well, guess <laughs> you know, what? It's just not my favorite. We got another six hundred <laughs> pages to go. Yeah, I'm hoping the next book is in second person. That would help. <laughs> 
There we go. You walk into the It'll pastoral home. Second person, second person present tense. Yeah, second person present tense. You in are the reading 1830s. Middle March by George Eliot. You ride in the carriage. You suddenly, smell if urine. on a winter's night, a traveler. But... <laughs> you are Kazaban. Okay, you are a liar. That's enough. Actually, I would not mind a second person novel from Kazaban's point of view. <laughs> Poor Kazaban. Do it. Like, oh shit. I gotta write this book now. <laughs> well, I look forward to book three. What's it called? Waiting, Waiting for, for death. death. That's great. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Looking forward to that. As I wake up every morning, seeing if I have a sense of smell. <laughs> Very good. Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.